Caleb. That was excellent. Okay, we'll open the floor for questions or some comments that you might have. And if we don't have questions or comments, we'll let him go through these points one by one for us today. <laughs> uh, Caleb, I thought that was masterful. I really appreciate it. Uh, I would just like to make a couple of comments. One is to <clears throat> pay honor to whom honor is due. Uh, Ron Porter taught us this about understanding uh, long before O. Palmer Robertson wrote about it. However, I do recommend that book highly, and O. Palmer Robertson was quoting Ron Porter in that book. He just didn't give him credit. And uh, we appreciate being taught that a long time ago. Also, I did want to make one comment about some of the principles that can be gleaned from chapter 14 and applied to modern day assemblies. I do think, I'm not sure what you were saying right there at the end about bilingual assemblies, but I think it's a good principle to follow, to have someone interpret if there is a bilingual assembly rather than the speaker interpreting himself. And it's basically for the same reason. Of course, we trust everybody, and we think everybody's a good person, but there are people in the past who've been false teachers or whatever, and this is a good check and balance in a bilingual assembly because you, most or some of the audience does not know what is being said in Spanish, for example. Uh, and everybody needs to know that the same thing is being said both ways. In, in Zimbabwe, we always have an interpreter. We have a number of languages, an audience, and uh, sometimes someone gets up to speak, and there's a discussion among some of the leaders on the first few rows about what language he's going to preach in, and who's going to interpret it, and how many of such are in the audience, and so on, so that most can know what's being said. And, and I think that this is a really important principle of checks and balances that we need to follow. I would agree. Well, excuse me if my uh, question is not yet well formulated, but I thought I'd share it while the conversation was going on. Uh, toward this point that Al Alan was talking about and that you, you brought up, uh, do you think it's, it's important to have this check and balance in, in every assembly, beyond just the, the question of bilingual translation, but about this kind of a, a give and take between multiple brethren to make sure that everything is, is going on, uh, you know, happening above board, so to speak. Do, do you think there's any implication of that in this chapter uh, beyond the matter of translating language? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. And in fact, I forget the verse exactly, but when Paul's talking about the gift of prophecy and he encourages for those to sit by and uh, judge what the prophet says and uh, this is not him speaking in a foreign language but speaking in a language the revelation from God that he has received in a language that all can understand and yet still he is to have a one who is or maybe multiple sitting by and judging what he says so I think that's a, a good principle to, to draw as well appreciate it very nice this Isaiah 28 11 and 12 in 1st Corinthians 14 and 21 there's an argument overlooked here, and that is by quoting Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, he's showing the tongue speaking as a foreign language. 
And I think that's really a strong point that that's overlooked because what's he quoting? A situation where they're talking in a foreign language. And in fact, they said, we don't want you to talk in this language. So when he quotes it there, that's another proof that we're definitely dealing with foreign language. And uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, that section up there that seems so difficult about understanding, if we read that when it talks about with understanding and put with an interpreter, it kind of simplifies the whole concept and shows us, of course, how everybody is uh, edified. Thank you. Thank you. Are you prepared to talk to us about one of these points? Sure, sure. Pick um, one out and tell us. <clears throat> Let's see. There was a point brought up to me not long ago that I thought was interesting at least. It has to do with that third point on the board, the Old Testament context of Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, which uh, Brother Ron talked about a little bit just now. And that is, of course, an excellent application of, of Paul's argumentation there. But I want to look at something else in Isaiah chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. This is a passage I think many are familiar with. He says, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, for with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to his people. And it goes on to the verses that Paul quotes. And it's my understanding that in the original Hebrew language of this text, each of these words in verse 10 that's used, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, are all monosyllabic words, so almost like uh, you say, saying very, very short, simple words over and over and over again. And from what I understand, there are many commentators, and they make pretty compelling cases, I think, that this is the way that the Jews would uh, make fun of their little children when they would just babble nonsense. Of course, they weren't actual words. It was just the babblings of a little child that we're familiar with, kind of like the the goo-goo-ga-ga uh, imitation that we make occasionally. This was their version of that, and uh, Isaiah is saying that there are going to be people coming from different languages, different foreign nations, and it's going to sound like these babies that you make fun of, it's going to sound, their language is going to sound like them. You're not going to understand a word they're saying, but they're going to be used as my instruments to teach you what you ought to know. I thought that was an interesting point to bring forward from the Old Testament context, and Paul even seems to hint at this, or hint at at least uh, that application in 1 Corinthians 14 as well. So I just present that for your consideration. Excellent. Anyone else have a question? We may go through each of these points here. If, if you're prepared, Caleb, you're doing an excellent job. Thank you. You've got time. Go ahead. <clears throat> we can talk about the second one. Was tongue speaking something that was for the Jews alone or for Gentiles as well? There was a brother who uh, asked me this question um, because in many contexts it seems that it's Jews speaking in Gentile languages because that is what would have been impressive to a Gentile unbeliever. You can think it wouldn't be very impressive for a Gentile to speak in a Gentile language. That wouldn't be impressive really to anyone. They were expected to be able to understand or maybe even speak those languages. So that wouldn't have been very impressive for, for that to happen. 
So the uh, question was asked, well, was this something that only Jews uh, participated in? Obviously, there's the Cornelius example in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, and that shows that there was at least one occasion when a Gentile and his family or his household uh, spoke, in, spoke in tongues. And one of the points that was made, I think, is maybe helpful. It's possible they were speaking in the tongue of Hebrew, which they had never learned before, being Gentiles, being a Roman centurion. They wouldn't have known the language of Hebrew. But to Peter, that would have been extremely uh, impressive to him. And it would have showed him beyond any shadow of a doubt that these people were truly allowed to enter the kingdom of God because they were speaking uh, the language of God as, as the Jews thought of it. I thought that was an interesting point as well to bring up. What about this last one, the difference between the office of prophet and of prophecy? <clears throat> I think it's cut off a little bit, but it, I think the full discussion is the difference between the office of a prophet and the gift of prophecy. The question could be raised, is there, um, was, was Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 14 when he asks her and when he says, that he wishes all could prophesy. Is he saying that he wishes all could be could have the office of a prophet, or just simply that they could prophesy? They had the gift of prophecy, and I think I prefer the the latter interpretation, and not that he's asking everyone to be, to have the office of a prophet. And I draw that conclusion from what Paul says earlier in chapter 12, and from what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says that each uh, office was given to the church, and if all were one then where would the rest of the body be if all were one member? So I, I draw that conclusion there. And I think there is a distinction to be made between the office of prophet. I think there were people in the Old Testament who prophesied, maybe once or maybe on several occasions, but they didn't necessarily hold the office of a prophet. Um, and again, there's a, uh, that book that I mentioned earlier by James E. Smith, Biblical Prophetism, talks about that in great detail, and I would encourage uh, anyone interested to read that as well. Do you have any closing comments? I don't have any further material to add other than uh, I hope it's been thought-provoking and helpful and I don't want to pretend to know everything about this subject or this chapter. In fact, there are probably some of you in this audience that could have given this presentation ten times better than I did, but uh, despite my shortcomings, I hope it's, hope it's been helpful. Well, as far as I was concerned, I thought he did an excellent job. I want to commend you for it. and. Uh, we're not here to see who could have given a better talk on the subject, but we're here just to learn, all of us, and everybody here has learned today, and a very excellent presentation.